Uh, I would like for you, if you will, turn with me now to Isaiah 56. Simple title I've given to my message this morning is Salvation is Coming Soon. Some of you may be thinking the end of this series in Isaiah, is it coming soon? Uh, As we were trying to lay out the coming weeks uh, with the preaching team, as we alternate with Pastor Charlie, uh, I thought maybe about a month ago that we were getting close, but the more we sort of just addressed each situation, uh, we, we're still here, right? So, uh, uh, but it's all good, and hopefully you're uh, gaining a better understanding of our salvation, you're gaining a better appreciation for our salvation, and that you understand how all of this, uh, the book of Isaiah is sort of, if you will, right in the middle of God's redemptive history, if you will. Uh, it's not necessarily right in the middle of, of the history of mankind, but when you think about it, it not only fits right in the middle of your Bible, that is, if you have a you know, bound copy on pages, but if you have electronic, then it really doesn't matter. But it, it, the, the, the truths that we find from Isaiah is, is the central message that we have of who we are as God's people before, during, and after God's work in our life. And so hopefully as we continue looking today, we come to uh, a couple of chapters, and hopefully that won't scare you off too badly. We'll try to at least keep that within the afternoon. We'll finish up. Uh, But salvation is coming soon. That doesn't mean the end of the sermon's coming soon, just as long as you all understand that. But we do certainly want to give attention to God's Word, and we need help for that. So let's pray. Father... I ask that you would do that which none of us in this room or anyone else on the face of this planet can do. And that is to reveal yourself through your word in a supernatural way that will change us. Father, you are sovereign over the provision of your word. You are sovereign over the preaching of your word. And you are also sovereign over the application of your word. So, Father, I pray that as your word goes forth that you would find the receptive hearts that you have prepared, that you would have opened the ears and our eyes to see and to hear so that we might believe and that we might obey and that we might enjoy the fruit of what you will accomplish through the preaching of your word today. So, Father, remove me, Lord, keep me from being a a distraction, an obstacle. Uh, May, Lord, I not be the one that the attention is focused on, but, Lord, may your word truly gain the attention that it deserves, and may we truly listen and believe as you have called us to do. So, Father, we ask for your help to do that, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin reading in verse 1, Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. In our Christian growth group this morning, our lesson included the the institution of the Sabbath, a day of rest, a day in which God rested from his labor. And we understand that to mean that he didn't need to rest because he wore himself out. He did so in order to give us an example of how we would live our lives in accordance to his instruction. 
But there's some other aspects about the Sabbath that as we read through the scriptures, uh, we find that the importance is more than just simply tacked on at the end of a work week. Uh, we understand that the Sabbath uh, from Exodus is literally a sign of the covenant that God had with his people, Israel. That as he was bringing them out of captivity through the wilderness towards the promised land, that he, in giving Moses the law, established one of those commandments to keep the Sabbath because it was a holy day. This was going to differentiate them from all the other people groups uh, in the world, is this day of rest. But it goes even beyond that. As one commentary says, its observance entered essentially into the idea of their worship. It was designed to be the standing memorial or sign between God and the Jewish nation. In other words, worship was going to be geared around this day of rest. Another commentator mentions that it was a test of the nation's commitment to God. Failure to keep it holy would result in death. Observing the Sabbath showed that the Israelites were set apart to God. So we see that when we study Scripture, which we obviously don't have time to do all of that this morning, that we see that the Sabbath involves their worship. It involves a sign uh, of the covenant that God had with them as a people. That it was a test to, to demonstrate their commitment to God and that it would also be a testimony to the other nations as to how they were living. The book of Hebrews gives us one last tidbit of information that is really important to us to understand that it is in Jesus Christ that we find our ultimate rest. And that while there is a day that is to be set apart, and while the New Testament commands all but this one commandment, it is still vital to our existence. That it helps us to live in a productive, practical way, but to understand that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this ultimate rest in our pursuit to have a relationship with God. So when we think about, even in this context in Isaiah 56, that the Lord is calling his people to hold it fast, to not profane it, that the, the, that the idea of rest goes way beyond a physical cease of exertion of energy. But it points to a much greater picture of resting and the work of Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of every single and last need that we need have to be fulfilled to have a relationship with God. But it is indeed a part of this way of preparing for salvation that the Lord said is coming soon. Now again, this requires us to keep in mind the context of what's going on here. Isaiah is writing to a group of people who are still living at home. And much of the sin that God is about to judge them for is still continuing to abound. And God has promised them that if you continue to sin, I will discipline you. And this is one that goes way beyond even Isaiah. But he's looking ahead. And much of what we've studied so far in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah pointing towards a day of, of exile. Pointing towards a day of judgment. 
But also, as we have seen in the most recent sermons from this book, that even beyond that is a day of deliverance. That while they're still living in their sin today, in their context, Isaiah is promising that they will be judged soon. But after that, there's deliverance. There's a Messiah coming. There is a servant of the Lord who is going to be bruised. And he will share in the, not only just share, he will take upon himself the iniquity of them all. And be their savior. And that ultimately that same savior will give to them an eternal joy and rest and peace in God. So when he says that my salvation will come, we have to kind of keep in mind the fact that they haven't tasted the destruction yet that's been promised. And many people who listen to Isaiah preach and those who would soon hear what was given to him as he writes it down would never experience any of this. But it's a sure word of prophecy. It is going to be fulfilled. And, and as we look back in history, we see that it was. But the salvation that Isaiah speaks of is one that all of us have yet to experience. There was a day in which those exiles would return back to Jerusalem. We have portions of the Old Testament that describe those events historically. But this day of righteousness being revealed is a day in which none of us have yet seen because Jesus Christ has not yet returned. But back to our text. Because this salvation is coming soon and because the righteousness will soon be revealed, there is a word of instruction that we all need to heed today. And that is keep justice and do righteousness. Now keep justice and do righteousness is not an instruction of how you would become a Christian or how you become a believer, but yet the opposite. It is merely a demonstration of what your life will be when you do commit your life to Christ. When you do become a believer, when you are God's child, this is what will take place. You will practice that which God has enabled you to do through His Spirit. We see this in the book of James from a New Testament perspective, do we not? It's not merely just faith, but faith without works is dead. You show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. It also mirrors what the Apostle Paul says. That even though we've been saved by grace through faith, that we are to work out our own salvation. It's not that we're working for our own salvation, but we're just simply meeting it out. That which God has saved us from and what he has saved us to becomes the product of our lives. So that we are to keep justice and do righteousness. For that's what the Lord requires, is it not? To walk humbly, do justly, live righteously before God. So salvation will come soon and the righteousness will be revealed. And when that will happen, again, there are those of us who seek to find those dates. There are some of us who will relinquish that to everyone else. There are some of us who just understand that it will happen. How will it happen? Where will it happen? All of these types of things intrigue us for the most part. But let's not be distracted by that today. Let's understand that we have been called to keep justice and do righteousness because Jesus Christ is coming soon. 
Now don't confuse that with he's coming this afternoon or he's coming next week or he's coming in year so and so. But to understand that when it comes into when it comes into the perspective of an eternal God, soon is a thousand years. That's the way the, the way Peter puts it, right? The day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. But when it comes to soon, we need to reckon the fact that Jesus Christ is near. Now, let's look at some particular groups that Isaiah identifies here in this text, in 56 as well as in chapter 57, of who should be concerned about this message. Well, first of all, the outcast and the others. Notice in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now here's three different groups that we have here. First of all, we see the foreigner. The foreigner, as it's worded here, who has joined himself to the Lord. In other words, this is a person who is outside the, 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 the nation of Israel. They've observed. They've seen what the Lord God has done through the history of these people. Perhaps they were like Rahab and saw firsthand the deliverance of God. Maybe there was someone like Ruth, who being a Moabitess, was able to, by God's grace, be grafted into the nation. But as we think about the coming judgment of God, when we think about the salvation and deliverance is coming and my righteousness will be revealed to the person who's not a part of God's family, that should bring great concern. And to the foreigner, the question on our mind, well, surely the Lord's going to separate me from his people because I'm not one of them. I'm not a Jew. And when Jesus Christ comes back, surely he will cast me aside. But in verse 6, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and notice the description of how their faith is demonstrated, ministering to God, loving the name of the Lord, serving God, keeping the Sabbath, not profaning it, and holding fast to His covenant. God says, those I will bring into my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Not just the Jews, but to the foreigner. All of us in this room are to be eternally grateful for this measure of grace. That while we could justly say, surely the Lord will cast us off because we're not of Abraham physically. But God says, 
to those who by faith are serving me and love my name and keep the rest, those I will bring to my holy mountain. Those I will bring into my temple, as it were, because that is the house of prayer. Remember, that's what Jesus called it when he was going in on the, day, on the week before he was to, to die. He goes in and cleanses the temple. And what does he find? He finds the people in there have converted this house of prayer into a den of thieves. Because they were selling. They were exchanging this this means of grace through prayer for exchanging and, and, and ripping people off. And God says, don't you know that this is to be a house of prayer for all the nations? For all the peoples? So the foreigner has hope. We have hope today because the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, has, God brings, them, brings us all. But it's not just the foreigner. We also have a group of people called eunuchs. These are men who have been castrated. Most likely in order for them to give their 100% complete commitment to serving, usually within a palace. We see examples of that throughout the Old Testament. Some believe that those who were taken into captivity, such as Daniel and the other three Hebrews, were made eunuchs so that they could serve in the Persian government as the other servants would. Deuteronomy talks about those who would do this intentionally. And those would never be allowed to go into the holy place and to worship God. And so there were those who were eunuchs. Perhaps Isaiah is speaking prophetically of those who, even while the nation of Israel was in captivity, that maybe they would have heard of this Jehovah and be intrigued to the point of wanting to pursue Him, but yet feel like, well, the law says I can't. And as verse 3 puts it, Behold, I'm a dry tree. I can't have descendants. You may recall Tim when he was preaching, referring as Isaiah was talking about those who were barren. And there was a promise in which they would have child. Many children. Well, to the eunuch, (laughs) sorry, not going to happen. You've just removed the opportunity for that. But yet notice what God says to them. To the eunuch who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In other words, I will make a memorial that people will remember even more than they will remember those of you who have children, your families. Only God can do that. And yet that's the hope that God gives to the person who is hopeless. And so we have two groups of people who could have read into the law, and and I'm using those terms specifically, reading into the law their abandonment from any of God's righteousness because of who they were. Isaiah exalts God in his effort to say, listen, 
eunuchs, God will give, make you a memorial better than even your children would have been. Uh, foreigners, even though you don't belong to the descendants of Abraham biologically, oh, but you're going to be a part because I'm going to bring you in. And then we have a third group. In verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This is missionary work at its finest. God is a great evangelist. God is the one who's going to bring groups that haven't even been gathered yet. He's going to bring them in. And as Richard sort of highlighted before we started singing this morning, hopefully you've picked up on that. This is what we call amazing grace. This is what we say, there is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And what relevance does that have for us? So no matter who we are, whether we are a thief dying on a cross next to Jesus, or whether we're somewhere in a country that used to be called Burma, God washes all our guilty stains. Amen. This is grace. And to the person who thinks of Jesus Christ coming back, when we think about salvation coming, when we think about judgment coming, when we think about righteousness being revealed, this is a really important point. Because if I am in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. All the things that were old are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. So salvation is coming soon, and that really does count when you're an outcast or maybe just one of the others. But also is a message that should be a concern for the wicked. Verse 9. The Lord says, all you beasts of the field, come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They can't bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say. Let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day Great beyond measure. I know it's easy to identify some of the problems today. As the world looks at what they consider the church and you look at what, is, what has taken place over the decades and who knows how much longer within the Roman Catholic Church. And we see the outrage that people have that the leaders within that church uh, when they abuse the relationships they have with particularly those who are young, and we're incensed. We, 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 we hate to even harbor the thought of things like that taking place. But I'd like to express at least my opinion based on what we just read 
that as horrible as these things are that we, re that we read about in, in the contemporary media today, about that, that it doesn't hold a candle to this, of what Isaiah is speaking about. Those who are to be watchmen, those who are to be shepherds, are laying around like my 12-year-old German shepherd who, who knows how many days she has left. All she wants to do is sleep. Lay around. She doesn't mind eating. That's one thing she'll get up for. She doesn't mind doing it. It doesn't seem like I can feed her enough. We can feed her. She's had lunch. All right. So we've got some scraps. Let's take them out there. Okay. We've got, you know, we go out and we've got a snack and do more and more. She doesn't stop eating. Thankfully, she doesn't bark a lot, particularly like these little nuisance dogs around the neighborhood that are wanting to get back in their house, which, you know, that's, that's a problem in and of itself, but I won't go there. But, but the Lord gives them a reprimand saying that they're like silent dogs who they don't even bark. They're too busy consuming on their own lusts. And while this may be easily applied to those who seemingly are looking for money, financial gain, which the New Testament makes it very clear they do, I think this also can be applied to any effort that we have apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That their appetite, they never have enough. They have no understanding about what the truth of the word of God is. And they easily replace it. They easily find additions to it. They, they will reduce it to whatever is convenient for them. They say, come, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, for tomorrow will be like this day and, and great beyond measure. They have lost their sights of what they should be doing. They have forgotten, as Paul would preach in the book of Acts, to those who there are wolves who are waiting to devour the, 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 the sheep of Jesus' church. We can thank God that we have a pastor. And I believe we have elders who understand, who will preach a message like Pastor Charlie preached last week. Unafraid of what it may have sounded like, how hateful it may have appeared, but to understand that there is a grave need for warning. That there are those on the outside, and, and the Lord, in verse 9, in a word of judgment, says, come and devour them. This is judgment. Let all you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts of the forest. For the watchmen are blind. Let them have that which they seek. Let them enjoy the fruits of their labor of selfishness and self-service. So we have these obstructive leaders who are self-indulgent. In verse 1 of chapter 57, kind of creates, if you just think about the, 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 in the context of these Religious leaders who are allowing their people to, to be exposed to, to the evils and the false religions around them. That he addresses the righteous man in verse 1. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. No one notices. No one cares. Devout men are taken away while no one understands why. For the righteous man is taken away 
from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. So while the rest of the world living their wickedness and their evil, the righteous person, their life expires. It is an entrance into peace. Now we don't want to take this to an extreme of just saying, okay, well let's just all end it now for, and that way we can just get away from this evil, wicked, sinful world. That's not why we're here. We're to be salt and light. But we should take comfort in the fact that even though the world doesn't really take notice that when the righteous person passes away, that that is actually ushering in to the glory of God for that person who is now delivered from all of, not only the wickedness that they were in, but they're also delivered from the judgment that is about to come. That's a gracious thing. And I don't think it's a mistake or perhaps just a coincidence that we have in verse or chapter 56 this talk about the Sabbath and about the rest in which the Lord speaks through Isaiah here speaking about those who are righteous even when they pass from this world into the next. He enters into peace and they rest. Because their rest is more than just simply eight hours overnight or seven days away on vacation or even that one day at the end of every week. But again, the rest is culminated in the completed work of Jesus Christ in whom all of us who trust Him for salvation rest. Now, not only are the self-indulgent, obstructive leaders to be concerned of this soon coming salvation or deliverance, but also the idolatrous. But you, verse 3 of chapter 57, draw near, sons of sorceresses, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the cleft of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are, are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial for deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. You have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. 
Notice some things about the people that were living in this day. The mockers. How are they mocking? Simply by living a life that was contrary to the righteous ones. They were, as it were, opening their mouth and sticking out their tongue. Now I know this gives you a picture of preschool. And you wonder, is this real? I mean, is this, is this part of the book of Isaiah we take literally like we do the... No, I'm just kidding. Um... But were they actually sticking their tongues out at people, making fun of the righteous ones? I believe that they probably were. If you look at the way the unbeliever, the unregenerate heart behaves today, just look on the news today. I mean, there'll be something that happened yesterday that there's video from, or something that happened even this morning there's video from, that will make it, are these people really human beings? Is this the way we act? Is this the way we respond to stuff? It makes, it's no challenge to me whatsoever to think that there were mockers who that when the righteous man walked along and was worshiping God, observing the Sabbath, not profaning it, that there were people that were mocking and scoffing and laughing at them. Sticking their tongue out at them. But these are people who in verse 8, this is chilling, behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. You may recall that as Moses was receiving the law from God and was giving it to the people, that one of the things that they were supposed to put on their doorposts was what? <laughs> the law. They were supposed to, to remember the law by putting that on their doorpost. What were these people doing? They were putting up their images on the doorpost. They were blamed. And God says that they deserted him. For you have just uncovered your bed. You're not even covering up your sin. You're just uh, taking the sheets off. For everyone to see. And we live in a world that as much as we can expect the unregenerate heart to be that way, we have those even within Christianity, and I'm using that term very loosely, who seem to be just kind of pulling the sheets off, saying, you know what, this really isn't as bad as we, we thought it was. Or, or we know now that we understand people better, we can understand this is how they are. And, you know, we really don't want to shame them in anything. We don't want to make them feel bad. We, you know, we just want to make them feel like they're a part. And so we basically are just kind of taking the sheets off too. That doesn't mean we are hateful. And that doesn't mean we're, we're mean. That doesn't mean we don't treat them with respect. And I may sound like an old-fashioned person here, Pastor Charlie, but I think there's something missing in this world that's called shame. And I think Isaiah is pointing out the fact that there is no shame in these people who are called by God to be His. And they deserted God. And they love the bed in which they are sleeping in. Now while there was spiritual prostitution taking place in this life, this is probably just simply figurative language as to how they are adulterers in their hearts, spiritually speaking. They were no longer faithful to God. But as they were collecting all of these pagan activities from the nations around them, it did include that. Even as it did in Paul's day when he was writing his letters to the church. He said, you've gone to great lengths and you've even strengthened yourself, he says. And you did not say it is hopeless. 
And it's an implication here, is there not? That God says, <laughs> but it is. You don't say that it's hopeless, but it is. He says, you found new life, and you were not faint. But notice in verse 11, I love this question. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and didn't remember me? <laughs> is that not what our sin causes us to do? Does, does, does the Holy Spirit convicting us show us in our mind and in our heart of hearts to understand we are sinning against God, but you know what? I'm going to lie to myself. I'm going to lie to God that it really isn't that important. That really, I'm not really going that far. I'm really not doing that evil. I'm really not doing that. And who is it that we're fearing that we really have to answer to? That is the conscience. That is what Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 1. This is the device that God has placed in every person, as we talked about this morning, that God, we're creating God's image. That's part of it. God has given us a conscience that no other creative uh, or another part of creation has. We have reasoning ability. We have something that, that shows us what's right and wrong. And God gives some over to a reprobate heart where they have at it. And here's an example of it. Because he says, have I not held my peace even for a long time? And do you not fear me? He says, I'm going to let your righteousness and your deeds declare who you are but it's not going to profit you. When you cry out, let your collect, collection of idols deliver you. When you realize that there is no profit in doing what you're pursuing, let your idols deliver you. When this salvation and when this deliverance and when this righteousness is revealed soon, you let those idols deliver you. That should be a word of warning. But, we have another group. We have the outcast and the others, and then we have the wicked, whether they be just the self-indulgent leaders or the idolatrous followers. We have a very intriguing group here, beginning in verse 14. God says, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. I believe this is a contrast from the group of people that we've just read about earlier in chapter 57. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. There's a group of people who will humble themselves or be humbled. And the Lord is saying, remove every obstruction from in front of their way. Because I, the one who am high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, my place is not just in the high and holy places, but my place is also with those who are lowly. Isn't that interesting? This high and lofty God, His dwelling place is with those who are lowly. Not with those who are exalted, for Peter tells us 
that God resists the proud. But he says, verse 16, I will not contend forever, nor will I be, always be angry. Now, does the Lord have reason to be angry? He's about to say so. He says, for the Spirit would not grow faint before me. He says, if I, what, if I didn't relinquish my anger, man is so weak. His breath is so frail that it wouldn't be able to stand. For the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. You pick whichever chapter you want to in the Old Testament and there you're going to have an example of God seeing their evil and his patience and his long-suffering and his deliverance. Particularly when you look in the book of, well, Judges. When they were continually doing what was right in their own eyes. But throughout the history of mankind, God has been doing this. And he, was, and he, and he judged them. He struck them. He hid his face from them. He was angry. But thankfully, the people of God learned from their lessons and they started doing right. And you're saying, preacher, which version are you reading from? Because that's not what mine says, nor does mine. For it says, they, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. And God says, I have seen his ways. But amazing grace arrives. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. You see the active party in this group of verses? It's God. He gives instruction. He watches the disobedience of his children. He gets angry. He corrects them. Delivers them. And they keep on doing what they want to do. And he sees it. But he says, I have seen it, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him. Why does he do that? We have no good answer for that. Don't we sing, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds paid my ransom. That's me. That's me. He sees me. And in spite of me, he says, I will heal him. I will lead him. And I'll restore comfort to him. And his mourners. Why? Because of verse 19, creating the fruit of the lips. So that I can praise him. 
so that I can declare the wonderful works of God. Peace, peace to the far and to the near. Thank you, Richard, for just pulling that out in your prayer. There's a reason. It's not because Isaiah was stuttering. It's because there was a reason to repeat and emphasize what is being said here. Peace, peace to the far and those who are near. God wasn't abandoning His people Israel. He was saying peace to all. And I will heal him. However, to the wicked, there's the tossing sea. Can't be quiet. Waters toss up mire and dirt. I picture Jesus in a boat. Sea of Galilee. And he's resting. While the waves are crashing, the boat's rocking back and forth, and he's resting. <laughs> and disciples are out on the, on the, out on the, on, on the boat. Apparently there's only one room down the bottom to sleep. They were all stuck out on top, and they were fearful for their life and saying, wake up, you've got to save us. Because they thought those waves were, were out of control. That those waves were going to consume them. And what did Jesus do? Peace, be still. And all of a sudden, water was flat. But to the wicked, the waves keep beating. The noise doesn't stop. And for all of eternity, those who die apart from Jesus Christ, when that judgment comes soon, the noise won't stop. Because God makes it very clear there is no peace for the wicked. There is none. Not even a little bit. Not even as a rich man would say, can you just... Get my, can you just take a little bit of water and touch it on my tongue? That's not peace. Even if you could get, that's not peace. But to the contrite, to the lowly of heart, to the repentant, to the believer. It's not through your efforts. It's not through your perfection. It's not through your ability. But it's through your accepting and keeping holy the Sabbath. The rest that only Jesus Christ can provide. Is that where you're at today? Salvation's coming soon. Can't come soon enough unless you're lost. If you're lost today, today is the day of salvation. Don't let it by.